0: Welcome to The Balance, my name is Dr. Katlyn Tucker and this podcast is sponsored by StudySync. My guest today is Kareem Vera, who spent his teaching career as a high school math educator in Hawaii and Washington, D.C. He earned his undergraduate degree from Washington University and later received his master's degree in secondary education at John Hopkins University. Instead of using the traditional lecture model, Kareem taught mathematics through a blended model where students access content through his self-made videos. The cornerstone of his classroom was the ability for students to work through the content at their own pace and for Kareem to be able to employ mastery-based grading to evaluate student learning. In 2018, Kareem received the D.C. Public Schools Award for Classroom Innovation and was featured in Edutopia and CBS News for his work. So in an effort to scale his classroom model, Kareem co-founded a nonprofit called Modern Classrooms Project. And as the CEO of Modern Classrooms Project, Kareem and his team train and support teachers who seek to redesign their classrooms using a blended, self-paced, mastery-based learning to meet the needs of all students. So I am very excited to have Kareem on the podcast. We were lucky enough to land on a panel together. And as soon as we started chatting, I knew he was somebody I wanted to bring on the show to have this conversation. Well, I am super excited to have you on the podcast today. And I always start by inviting my guests to just tell us a little bit about their journey in education. So where did your career begin? And then how did you get to the work you're doing now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, I started my teaching career. Well, I didn't even know I was going to be a teacher. First of all, let's start there. Um, I thought it was going to be investment banking. I was. I went to undergraduate business school. Loved math, and I was like, "This is not for me. I want to be an educator." So I became an educator. I um, was super excited about it, and started my teaching career in Hawaii. Actually, um, oh, wow. So I was um, on the island of Oahu, teaching in an awesome community on the west side of Oahu. Um, where I started teaching high school math. It was an amazing journey. It was was life-changing for uh, a litany of reasons. Um, And that's where I started. I spent three years teaching in Hawaii. And then I went back to my old stomping grounds, which was the D.C. community, um, and then started my fourth year teaching in D.C. public schools and continued there for a number of years. So that was my teaching career. I spent my whole time teaching um, high school students, ninth grade all the way up to 12th grade. Um, and a ton of different content areas, um, which far too many teachers are far too accustomed to. Mm. And I would say the whole time I was confused as to how ineffective traditional teaching. Right? like I think I, I started my teaching career. And when you're a new teacher, you're just like, I have no time to challenge norms because I'm just trying to not be a fool in here. Um, And then like after year one, you're like, all right, I think I like sort of get it. So let's make it like reasonably effective. And the whole time I'm like, but this, I'm trying to perfect something that actually doesn't make any sense um, was sort of how I felt for those first few years. Right. Like I'm trying to get this whole teaching traditionally thing right, but I'm actually getting good at something that isn't necessarily good for kids. And I don't know why. Um, So it was in year four of my teaching career. That I actually had built this kind of new approach to teaching. It was at that stage where I was like, look, I'm teaching a huge diversity of learning levels, ton of diversity of social emotional needs, lots of students experiencing trauma, ton of chronic absenteeism. I can't use a one-size-fits-all approach to teaching and achieve any success in this environment. So it was at that time that I actually started to innovate uh, and create a new instructional approach. And, I, and me and my co-founder, Rob, would say, like our instructional approach is evolutionary, not revolutionary, and in many ways, it pulls what well, so many folks like yourself and others have been talking about, thinking about, it, and just creates a formula that's replicatable for many educators to think about. So I actually built that approach with my co-founder in that first year I was in DC public schools with no intention of creating something scalable or a prospering like that. Won a few awards after a couple of years, and then it was time for us to kind of launch the nonprofit and think about how to train educators. So that's the journey uh, to this point.
0: So I'm super curious. I also was in college not thinking I was going into education at all. My mom's an attorney. I was going to law school and then I had that pivot. What was it for you that made you decide, you know what? I don't want to do... What do you say? It was going into business? Yeah, high banking. I, I, yeah. I want to go into education. Like, Was there a moment or something that happened for you?
1: I, in my junior year of college was a part of a program in St. Louis called Each One Teach. When I graduated from Washington University in St. Louis, and I was getting my degree in finance. And Each One Teach One places you in communities nearby and allows you to, to just like tutor students in an after-school program. Um, I think that exercise brought me um, very close to students who didn't get an education that I received. And I was sort of startled, just to be frank. And it was, it was, it was kind of bubble bursting. It's like you don't know what you don't know. And then you kind of go in an environment and you're like, wow, like, I was given such a different opportunity structure and this just isn't fair. After that tutoring experience, is, it was a first semester. I then interned at an investment bank. And like, <laughs> when you go to an investment bank, I mean, it's just like, it's a whole new world in there. It's like just the amount of just like resources and dynamics and everyone seems to be coming to from these top universities on paper and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking like, not only is this not particularly inspiring work for me, but also I could not shake this idea that the students I was tutoring didn't have a pathway to be able to work in that investment bank. And at that point, I said, look, I'm not about this anymore. Like, I loved tutoring those students. I want to make that a part of my career. And I also just want to contribute to being able to provide students with an education and opportunity structure that I received. growing But my parents were immigrants. They didn't have the education that I had. But they were able to provide that for me. But I knew that so many kids across the world were not getting that. So if I could be one small part of that, then I I would be happy. So that's what brought me into the teaching career.
0: That's always so interesting, the way that people's paths kind of sometimes just put them in this profession so randomly. And then, I mean, same for me. And then I just, I have never looked back and love it. So for those who are listening who are not familiar with the Modern Classroom Project, can you explain kind of what this whole comprehensive kind of replicatable model is all about?
1: Totally. Well, first thing I'll say is it's not a curriculum. It's not an ed tech tool. So the first thing I tell everyone, because I just feel like the world of sort of professional development and innovation sometimes is too like it's like bifurcated into these two options. It's like you either learn about a curriculum or you either learn about an ed tech tool. And it's like, believe it or not, there's a whole world of like how you run a classroom that's its own (laughs) piece. So we're an instructional delivery model. I don't even know if that's an official term that's what we are. So we rethink the way that teachers actually deliver instruction and work with students in the classroom. I think there's an endless number of ways you can think about that. We just actually arrived at an instructional model with three core principles that seem to work for us and that educators appreciate because it provides them a balance of structure and customization. So the first part of the model is blended instruction, which certainly you know quite well. Um, And in our model, the core idea was, look, like we need to get rid of lectures. When we are lecturing, it's a terrible use of our time as teachers. It's an awful use of student time as well. So how do we get rid of them? And we train teachers to build their own instructional videos. So it's their voice, their little face on the screen, nine minutes or under ideally six. So they're able to replace those live lectures with an instructional video. So that's kind of phase one. And they obviously upload it into the learning management system. This is a nice digital home base that students access the direct instruction. Phase two, so once you've eliminated those live lectures, well, now there's no reason kids have to be at the exact same spot in a particular unit. So that's the self-pacing component, phase two of the model. And that just means kids can work at their own pace. But in our instructional approach, that's within each unit of study and oftentimes shorter chunks than that. So it can be one week at a time, two weeks at a time, three weeks at a time. Self-pacing is frankly where I think things are really interesting. It's like where the innovative really kind of creative dynamics of a classroom come to life. It's also the most challenging part of the model, frankly, for a lot of teachers, mm-hmm. right? Because it's one thing to say, I'm going to build a bunch of digital resources. Another thing to say, like, I'm going to walk into a room. Some kids are less than three, and some kids are less than four, and some kids are less than six. Like, that can feel intimidating. But we did this all to arrive at a world where we could create students on mastery or competencies. And my belief and my kind of proposition has always been you can't grade students on mastery or competency if you haven't created an environment where kids can be at different spots in the unit. Those two things actually come directly in conflict with each other. Um, yep. We're talking about an idea that isn't actually executable. So that's the third component of the model is mastery-based grading. So you blend that instruction, you let kids work at their own pace, and then you grade students on mastery, and you've sort of arrived at what we would call a modern classroom.
0: Yeah. And I love that because I saw that when I was looking through the free course of like, how do we start to understand this? What does it look like? And I love that there are, there was kind of that guardrail of it's not yourself pacing through a whole year of study, or, you know, it's more like these contained a week, two weeks, a unit. Um, so that it is a little bit more manageable for teachers to really understand where kids are or where at in their learning and kind of tracking their individual progress.
1: It's, you know, one of the things that we realized is like, when you run a model like this, you're teaching kids 21st century skills, which requires just as much scaffolding Mm -hmm. as, you know, learning how to factor quadratic or write a high quality sentence. And if you just let kids work at their own pace endlessly, well, you're just basically creating a classroom environment that's going to advantage the folks that have really strong 21st century skills. And the students that don't are going to bottom out and lose motivation and lose confidence. That chunking of self-pacing is, to me, a non-negotiable. Otherwise, you're really just making kids who need to strengthen those kind of softer skills feel like they can't succeed in the classroom and want to give up.
0: I can totally see that, especially for those who, you know, they are taking a bit longer to self-pace through modules or units or chunks, where then it can be, if it was (laughs) never-ending self-pacing, then there is that degree of, I'm so, I feel so much farther behind than the rest of these students. Why am I still doing this work? Absolutely. So, what challenges exist in the traditional classroom that you feel like the modern classroom model really addresses and helps to solve?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. I've always said in my career that differentiation is the most overused and under-executed term in education. Um, And I didn't realize how how much people agreed until I started tweeting that, and it had a lot of traction. So it was clear to me and the world that this is something that everyone sort of agreed with. And it's a shame because I think if we, we ask ourselves as educators, what is the most important thing we do in the classroom is differentiate the students' academic and social-emotional needs. Um, so I think our model at its core is a differentiation model. And I think the way we address that is by empowering educators to use their time more effectively. I think when we think about the most limited resource we have in our education system, it's teacher time. Mm-hmm. It's just a reality. And if we don't appreciate how limited that resource is and how important it is, then we're going to create classrooms that are really inefficient and effective at meeting students' needs. So in our classrooms, we really think about this idea that Teacher time is precious, so let's maximize it. And the ways that we maximize it is assuring that students are working with teachers in one-on-one and small group settings. Mm -hmm. And that's what our model does, is remove the teacher from being at the front of the room, puts them at the center of the classroom, and simply says, your job when you've planned a modern classroom effectively is to seek out students who need your support work with them on -on one-on-one in small groups, but also build student relationships, like connect with kids, chat with kids in one-on-one and in like other community building style structures. So that's really what we do. And you have to do the student-centered piece to get there, right? You have to put students at the center to be drivers of their own learning to free you up, to be able to work with students one-on-one in small groups. So differentiation is by far the most important part. I think when you differentiate effectively, you do other things well, like data-driven instruction, uh, like effective collaboration where kids are actually working for a common goal, uh, like effective mastery-based and competency-based grading, because you have to collect that data, look at it effectively, and kind of align it to standards. So there's a lot of additional effects. But if there was one core thing I think the Modern Classrooms Project does effectively and our model does effectively, it's differentiated to kids' needs.
0: Yeah. And I think what you're saying about Freeing teachers from the front of the room. When I work with teachers and there's that pushback against some blended strategies, I think it's because they spend so much of that time talking and transferring that information. And I feel like that's the biggest barrier to really teachers being able to engage in the human side of this teaching, which is that facilitation, that coaching, that small group, one on one kind of support. So as you think about a teacher in a modern classroom, what are they like what are they doing? So they're differentiating instruction, they're supporting students, are they getting to look at some of that data in the classroom? Like what are some of the uses of that time?
1: Yeah, so it's really interesting because a lot of teachers when they first launch a modern classroom will actually ask us like what do I do with my time?
0: Which I always <laughs> say
1: like if you're asking that question, you're in a really good spot because I can give you a whole lot of things that you could be doing with your time when you have 25, 35 kids in a classroom. So The first thing they're doing is they're checking in with kids. Just like at the opening of class, after you might do a kind of opening huddle up or something like that, kids start working. Some kids are watching instructional videos. Some kids are tackling mastery checks. Some kids are collaboratively working on assignments. And you're actually going to whip around the room and just check in with kids. Are you clear on what you should be accomplishing? Are you clear on what your goals are for the day? Are you clear on what tasks you're working on? Just to make sure that every kid is kind of like centered and understands what they need to accomplish in that chunk of time. As soon as that's done, Now, what the educator is doing is identifying students who need support, and that's all based on data. So kids are turning in assignments, and they're turning in mastery checks. Those are kind of the two types of things they should be turning in. The assignments are the practice, and that could be an activity, that could be a project, or that could be a piece of paper. And then there's the mastery checks. And the teacher actually has a system, usually a BIN system, where they're looking at that student work and assessing whether or not it is up to standard or not. If it's up to standard, great. You tell the kid, like, nice work, keep on moving. If it's not up to standard, you're identifying where they need to revise or be reassessed, and then you're calling them down for small group instruction. So the most common thing you'll see in a modern classroom is something we call a teacher nest, which is usually quite central to the classroom. It's where the teacher spends the bulk of their class time, and all they're doing is looking at data live and then calling kids down based on that data to work with them in small groups or individually. And I've always said it's kind of like a station rotation on steroids. Like a lot of times station rotation is like kids move from station to station in like a fixed pattern. What we kind of say is there's one station, it's the teacher station, and that's when they're intervening when kids don't have clear understanding. And the entire rest of the room is the other station that's working in a self-paced format collaboratively to accomplish the task they need to accomplish by a given deadline.
0: Yeah. It almost reminds me from my perspective, working with teachers on the different blended learning models is like, almost like you have this playlist for the week or two weeks or even that unit. And I'm always a big advocate of like, when you create a playlist, you can differentiate it for three different levels of kind of rigor or support on the outset, but then students are self-pacing through it. And the teacher has these kind of like teacher check-in moments where when you hit this kind of stop sign, I used to call it like Tucker time, just because it was like the time to come sit with. Me and like, let's look at what you're doing and let's take a peek at the data and what additional modifications or you know things might we need to adjust on your playlist for you to keep making progress. I almost see it as like they're moving down their self-paced track. And then the teacher using the data is really intentionally pulling them at different moments to sit and get that instruction, that additional scaffolding and support, or maybe that feedback on whatever it is they're working on in progress, which I love that because then you're just you're just having those interactions, you're building relationships by working so closely with the kids in your room.
1: Well, and I think like when I taught traditionally and I reflect back on it, there was so much time that was not purposeful and it wasn't just the time that I was spending at the front of the room, but it was also the conversations I was having with kids. Like all the grading I was doing, all the passing back of papers, like There was not a purpose behind the exercise so frequently. And I think the goal of the Modern Classrooms Project is to make interactions purposeful. It doesn't mean they're always about content because an interaction about building a relationship with a student is also incredibly valuable, but those interactions are all purposeful. And I think Mm -hmm. so often teachers are spending time in traditional formats, repeating themselves, wasting kids' time. A bunch of kids don't know what's going on. A bunch of kids are ready to move on, not like... Providing data, but not analyzing data, like seeing data, but not intervening using that data. And the goal is to really make sure that all the interactions we have in a classroom are purposeful. They get us somewhere um, because we have to maximize this precious time we have with students. Um, Otherwise, we're just not going to make gains or we're going to ignore so many kids needs.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think about in this moment where we have so many teachers who are so exhausted, attrition and teachers leaving the profession is such a big concern. And my research was on teacher engagement. And what we know about like emotional engagement is it's all about, you know, are students engaged? And our social engagement with students, it's like are do we have strong relationships with them? And that's hard to do when you're standing at the front of the room just talking at kids for huge chunks of time. It's so much easier to do when we're sitting alongside kids. But I do know, I can imagine teachers being like, well, if you're in a modern classroom and students are self-pacing, like, what if they just don't do the work? What if, you know, what if they don't have the skills to be successful? So how how do you respond to teachers? Because I know how I respond to those questions, but I'm curious how you do.
1: Yeah, well... <laughs> One thing we do is we're an opt-in-only model, so we don't always have to respond to those questions, which I think does oh, speak to, good. it does speak to, it, but that's that doesn't actually eliminate the question. There's plenty of people who do our model who have this fundamental question, including myself when I was doing it. But it is an important kind of thing to know just for anyone listening, which is that we don't actually force educators to do this, um, which I think is critical, right? Because I think a lot of educators are on different continuums of innovation and folks actually opt into this program. Now, with that being said, I don't know anyone who opted into this program who doesn't struggle with student motivation at some point or the other. The first thing I say to folks is remember what traditional teaching was like, because they also struggled with motivation then, and they weren't necessarily mastering content, right? So like, I think there's this problem we face in education, as we're trying to move folks to be innovative, where folks seem to think that when you implement a solution, it solves everything. Mm -hmm. There's not one clear solution to student motivation. And if there is one, it's having more one-on-one and small group time and connectivity with kids. Um, but traditional formats of teaching actually hide student motivation problems. You say, Hey, everyone sit in rows, listen to me while I'm talking in the front of the room. And if you act up, I'm going to call you out. That just says, I'm going to like make you conform, but that doesn't do anything for student motivation. It doesn't mean kids are learning. It doesn't mean kids are excited about it. It doesn't mean any of that. So that's the first thing I say is like, kids are always going to struggle with motivation issues And if there's one solution to that, it's that we need to maximize the one-on-one connectivity with them so we can actually have conversations and hit at the core issue there. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing i say is one of the issues I think students face with motivation is that if you're three, four grade levels behind and you walk into a geometry classroom and you're being told you have to master the exact same amount of skills as your peer who's two grade levels ahead, well, I'm not going to be particularly motivated because I think that what's been given to me, the kind of The tasks in front of me are seemingly unconquerable, but doesn't make all that much sense. It's sort of like two people who have to bench press and one person has only been bench pressing 200 pounds, another person's been doing 300 pounds. But then on a random day, you go, you're both bench pressing 300 pounds. The person who's been bench pressing 200 pounds is going to be very unmotivated and feel like this is a place that's consistently designed for them to fail. And one way that we get around that is we engage in a lesson classification process. So every teacher who creates a unit in a modern classroom style, isolates must do, should do, and aspire to do skills. So they figured out what skills in this particular unit are non-negotiable, which ones we would like students to master and which ones are extensions. Now, any kid can always master all three lesson classifications. But when you look at a student who's unmotivated and don't feel like they have an on-ramp to success, When you go to that student and say, look, I want you to focus on these skills, this unit. These are the must-do skills, the non-negotiables that I want you to get. Suddenly you've taken this really daunting unit that can feel really overwhelming and a ton of skills that feels inaccessible and make it a whole lot more accessible and make a student feel like they can actually succeed um, when they have a kind of place to start. So I think that's a really important piece. The last thing I say, so if I'm summarizing this correctly, one, students aren't actually you know, motivation issues exist in traditional formats, even more so than our formats. The second is really creating a lesson classification structure. So there's an on-ramp to success for every student, every level. And the third piece is also building the guardrails and structures that allow kids to be effective self-regulators. I think a lot of times we assume kids are not motivated when really they don't know how to start. Like they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And then they're like, I give up. Like I don't know what's going on. So I'm done. The number of times that happens within the first five minutes of a lecture is amazing, right? Kid comes in, teacher starts lecturing. They're like, I don't know what just happened. They might've just experienced trauma. So they're like, also just I literally didn't hear you. And they're like, I don't know where to go. I'm done. Or a kid was absent, comes in, missed lessons two and three. Now they listen to four and they're like, I give up because you're talking about four and I don't know what's going on. So we have a lot of systems and structures around goal setting. Things like instead of a do now being about content, the do now is about just setting your goals for the day. What are you accomplishing for the day? What do you plan to get done? How are you feeling? Like simple structures like that, just create the systems and guardrails for kids to be better self-regulators. And what we found is when kids do that, they're more likely to actually engage in the content, be motivated and feel like they can be successful.
0: Yeah, so it's like that metacognitive skill building, right? It's like you start to think about your learning, you set goals for yourself, there's some degree in which they're probably like monitoring and tracking their progress and they're doing some self-assessment. And so many kids just they they aren't taught, they, you know, those skills those metacognitive skills aren't in standards and so a lot of teachers are like, I don't have time to do that. I don't have time to invest in those routines. And yet it's often those routines that help students appreciate the value of the work that they're doing and help them refine those self-regulation skills. Totally. So I could see that being huge.
1: Totally. It's massive. And you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is just ask an adult how important creating their own to-do list is. Like, I don't know, I can't navigate a day without a to-do list. Like I'll freak out. Um, so you know, <laughs> the same thing should apply to kids, but we don't actually instill like to-do list setting. And when you create that structure for kids, that has such a long-term impact on their success outside of your classroom. It's amazing. And we need to value those. We need to center those in classrooms. It drives me nuts that they're not part of the standards.
0: Yeah. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. So What are some of the biggest concerns, maybe beyond motivation, that you hear from teachers or district leaders when you tell them about the Modern Classroom Project? And when you hear those, which are probably concerns, probably a lot of fear-based stuff, what do do you say to teachers and leaders? I mean, I know it's opt-in, but there's still probably some hesitation from some who are interested, but they're like, "Uh, I don't know, is this going to work for us?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I imagine you face this as well, but a lot of it is just rooted in misconceptions. It's a lot of assumptions layered on top of each other, and you kind of just have to go one by one and tackle each of those misconceptions. So the first and kind of most frequent is this idea of release of control. Um, it's sort of amazing how consistently folks are afraid of giving students more autonomy to drive their own learning in classrooms. I mean, just that core idea of being scary is problematic because then they go, and leave your classroom, and they're given more autonomy. Mm-hmm. So we have to obviously need to build that. Because what's even more fascinating is people have a reverse understanding of which kids are actually most ready for them. So they quite frequently go, "Oh, this is a high school model, right?" And it's like, no, actually, in high school, you need to work the traditional model out of them. But if you go into a kindergarten, first grade, secondary classroom, like those kids are ready to be in control of their own learning. We haven't taught them a different way. So there's an incredibly odd misconception about what it means to give students the power to be in the driver's seat and whether or not they're quote-unquote developmentally ready. That phrase right there drives me absolutely nuts, right? It's like the common thing you hear. Are you sure, you know, fourth graders are developmentally ready? And I'm sort of like, you talk about high expectations with curriculum, talk about high expectations with students' 21st century skills. Like, Because you can hold kids to high academic expectations. You need to hold them to high expectations about how much they can kind of be at the center of the learning experience. That's the first misconception that we run into quite frequently. Um, And I'm passionate about that one because like, it's silly, right? And it's not right. And it's not good for kids. Um, The second one, I think, is a lot of times around screen time. Like, I just think there's a misconception around what effective blended learning actually looks like. And that's probably a consequence of really bad blended learning initiatives that have been out there. You know, when you combine Mm -hmm. massive online courses where kids are kind of just sitting in rooms, staring at screens and doing everything through a screen to some of the experiences folks had with this like atrocious amount of synchronous, like Zoom time over COVID, right? And you just like, people are afraid of that. They should be afraid of that. It's not good. So when folks present that critique, I always go, look, if you walk into a modern classroom and all kids are doing are staring at screens, you do not have an effective modern classroom. That's Mm -hmm. not what we train teachers on. That's not what we seek to create. And I always tell folks to watch Radiotopia Edutopia videos because what you'll see in those videos is actually a tiny fraction of the class period where kids are staring at screens. So that's one where just like you need to reorient folks around effective implementation of technology as opposed to just there's a blanket, like technology goes into classrooms and can stare at screens. So I'd Mm -hmm. say those are the two biggest. The third is like... Grading is just terrifying to folks.
0: Um, <laughs> it's
1: like a crazy thing. Like, the whole thing is like just like
0: bananas. It's, it's
1: bananas. It like, and, and what we evade it by saying, like, in our classrooms, kids move from one skill to the next based on competency. But we know that every single community does grading differently. And if you walk into the wrong room and you say A through F scale, someone's going to really, really mad at you. And then you walk into another room and you come up with another construct, folks are going to get mad at you. So the way we get around that is saying, look, ultimately, grading is a community-based decision and a teacher-level decision. We create the systems and structures to ensure that kids transition from one lesson to the next based on competency. Whether you grade them on a four-point scale, on an A through F scale, whether the quarters end And then you have to transition into a batch of skills or it's a year long. Like that's up to your community. So those are probably the three biggest. And the last one I think is more, it's an evasive answer before a reason, right? Because I think, you know, sometimes you need to let the community decide how things work.
0: Yeah. No, it can't be so rigid that then this model isn't accessible to different schools doing different things for sure. And I love the first, the misconception, because I could not agree more with the fact that when you start implementing some of these different models, whether they're blended learning models or it's a whole modern classroom kind of model, I always get pushed back like, oh, first graders can't do a free flow student pay station rotation. And I'm like, yeah, they can. I've seen it a bunch of times. They they don't have all of these preconceived notions about like what a lesson looks like or what learning looks like or what they're supposed to do as a student. But by the time you get them in high school, there's all of this dismantling of misconceptions and, and their mental models of what their role is in a classroom and what they do that makes it actually so much more challenging to kind of get them to engage in these different ways. And it's not impossible, but it's just so funny that that misconception is out there and I hear it all the time too. It's super frustrating. I feel like the biggest limitation students have is us as educators thinking that they're not capable of whatever it is we don't think they're capable of. And the grading thing drives me absolutely bonkers. And I think when you start to move toward a competency-based approach and you really start to rethink like, what are grades all about? What is the purpose of grades? But so many of the teachers that I work with, they're so exhausted. And you're absolutely right. Time is the biggest issue, the biggest barrier they all face. And yet they are still putting points and grades on everything because they're scared if they don't, kids won't do it. And it's just like, what are these grades a reflection of? Skills. Content knowledge? Probably not. It's probably compliance, study skills, motivation. Like, what are we doing here?
1: And that's the, I mean, the two words that I think define teaching and learning the most are compliance and convenience. Mm -hmm. I think if we ask ourselves why a lot of the things that don't work in education exist, you can either point to compliance being the goal, like this misconception that if kids are complying, then somehow they're learning or somehow they're engaged, or, It's the most convenient way to do things, right? And I think you and I have talked about um, in the past, like planning can be challenging, but when you plan effectively, then the classroom environment maximizes time and maximizes student learning. It's convenient to walk into a classroom, stand in front of a room and just teach the next lesson out of the textbook. Like that is definitely the path of least resistance from a planning and workload perspective, but it's not going to lead to the highest level of engagement and the highest level of learning. And I think with grading, so often we see this compliant style of grading. I'm grading as the educator because I feel like I have to because someone, some admin told me I need 10 grades in the grade book to be an educator, right? And then I'm telling students the way you're successful in this class is if you have me enter 10 grades in the grade book for your name. And that just what does has to do with anything, right? It's just like totally lost our way.
0: Yeah, and I, it, it's so true. Like I keep trying to highlight that the investment of time on the design side is is not it's not insignificant. There is in in any of these different kinds of models, there is much higher level of intentionality required, but the time you can recoup in terms of the way you spend your class interactions, looking at data, giving feedback, conducting assessments with students right there, it's like that paper trail follows teachers home. It's exhausting. It's not rewarding. It's not an opportunity to build relationships with kids when we do it in isolation. So I feel like the teachers who invest that energy and that time, Time in the design, even though it feels like a lot at first, they start to reap those rewards of like, oh, wow, look where I get to invest my time and energy in this class. Look at how much more connected I feel to these kids. I'm more engaged in this work. But it's like getting them over that design hump in the beginning can can be a heavy lift.
1: And I've always used the sports analogy. Like class should be like the game days. Like you should go in there and be excited and it's fun and it's challenging, and it's dynamic and you're capable and you have the energy to respond to the nuances of the day. But so frequently that's not the case, right? Because po- folks haven't done the prep side or haven't been able to, haven't been given the instructional delivery approaches that allow for that. So every day they're kind of walking in there and like not ready for all these new variables. It's very stressful. It's very rigid. And that's not good for kids. It kind of like, is like two bulls running at each other. The kids are bulls, the teachers are bull. And when things go wrong, like things get heated, things get frustrating, like, and that's just not a fun dynamic. And that's not one that's going to create uh, real student learning. So I cannot agree. The design piece is so important and it shows a deep appreciation for how challenging the profession is like, I believe teachers have arguably the hardest job on the planet, Um, but it is hard and therefore requires an intense amount of thought and planning on the front end to be done effectively. And I think we have to value that deeply. And I also think we need to think about creative ways to give teachers more planning time to actually invest in that.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. The one thing that I was so grateful for was hearing about the schools in the pandemic where it was like, okay, we have Monday and Tuesday with one group of students. Wednesday is async and teachers get to plan and do that, have that time. And then Thursday, Fridays with another group or whatever creative approach to scheduling they chose, but that left the teachers with a day, a day to design, a day to plan, to assess, because quite frankly, that's what they need. This this job, as you said, is so exhausting and multifaceted and i it's funny you you talk about the game day analogy i'm like i think of it cuz when i would spend time designing something really fun exciting student centered it was like i was jazzed to get in the classroom whereas you know i think about taking you know something i've taught for 10 years and just rolling it out again like am i excited about that do i do i get pumped for that class probably not you know and so yeah i think they reap the reward of that time just in their energy, their excitement going into that classroom. And I spent a ton of time trying to help teachers kind of reimagine workflows that are teacher led, time consuming, and exhausting, and often super inefficient. Are there any specific workflows where you feel like the modern classroom can help teachers to? To be more effective, to not be taking like so much with them or to kind of reimagine workflows that have been classically very teacher-centered and kind of exhausting?
1: Well, I think, you know, the most powerful thing that's a non-negotiable when you plan a modern classrooms unit is you have to think of the entire unit as a story. And that whole story needs to be ready to go on day one. Because some kids are going to move through that story faster than others. And there's parts of the story that every kid has to do. And there's parts of the story that aren't integral to the larger kind of themes. And I think that's an extremely important exercise around workflow and how you think about kind of structuring your time. That leads to really high quality units where students understand where they're starting, where they're going, where they're ending. So I think that's the first thing is like when you think about this idea of like, I am a teacher. I don't teach a series of discrete skills. I actually teach stories. They're called units. I need to put the full unit together from start to finish. Um, so I think a lot of our teachers actually become really effective backwards planners for that reason and are very intentional kind of designers of, of units because of that core idea um, that when you launch one unit, the whole thing needs to be ready to go. So that's the first thing. Um, I also think when we think about how you run an effective classroom one of the most important pieces that brought me joy was the opportunity to connect with kids. That was like number one, non-negotiable. If I'm going to have a successful day in the classroom, I was having one-on-one and small group interactions with students all day long. And in those interactions, I was getting to know kids. I was pushing them across a continuum of mastery. Like that was an extremely exciting piece of the process. And I think one of the workflows that ensure that we see some really compelling data at the Modern Classrooms Project about why they want to stay in the classroom longer or more optimistic about the profession is that we really design the classroom around this idea that 95% of the time, you're working with kids in one-on-one small groups, so that teacher nest. So I would say those are the two biggest things. I think that answered your question. Did
0: Did I hit that? Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. Um, And I'm curious, just from a totally logistical standpoint, what suggestions or strategies do you give teachers? So they design the story that is the unit that might run, let's say, just two weeks for uh, sake of this conversation. And obviously, you're going to have kids self-pacing through at different rates, which is the benefit. It's not a bad thing. I know that can be hard for teachers to kind of like wrap their heads around a little bit, but a kid finishes maybe a two-week story unit um, a week before another student. Like, First, how are teachers typically within the Modern Classroom Project tracking individual student progress? And then is it the um, kind of aspire to do extend stuff that becomes the work that they really engage in if they have paced more quickly than the rest of their peers? What does that logistical piece look like?
1: Totally. So first things first, um, you know, the research on self-pacing is really clear that for a self-paced classroom to be effective, students need to know exactly where they are and the teacher needs to know where the students are. So like tracking student progress in a self-paced environment is integral. I often say it's the distinguishing factor between complete chaos and controlled chaos, which is a very (laughs) important difference, right? Because one's Mm -hmm. a dream and one's misery. So um, that tracking piece is critical. It's one of the most important modules in both our free course and our virtual mentorship program. And we encourage kind of one of two options. There's the personal tracker option and the public tracker option. The public tracker would mean like you walk into a classroom and you see a slide or a physical tracker with magnets where kids are actually kind of tackling different skills and they're moving across this continuum. So they're literally kind of seeing themselves progress. There's this awesome example of a kindergarten classroom where they all have these little football helmets and like they're on these different boards. And like when they tackle a new skill, they grab their helmet and they move it to the next one. And that's kind of that structure right there. The personal tractors oftentimes are in the form of a game board. So you literally see like a little game board and kids are tackling that game board. And at the end of that game board is the kind of like summative experience at the end of the two week burst of self-pacing. In some cases, you have even simpler ones like checklists, right? So like lesson one, there's three things we check off and so on and so forth. So public or personal, right? There's a structure in which it's very visible to student, like what they should be accomplishing and where they're going and visible to teacher. Like I can walk around the room and see the student's personal game board and go, you're right here and you're supposed to be here. So that's the kind of key piece there from tracking student progress. And then in addition to that, you totally hit it right where the extension lessons are the ones that students are working on if they get through content really, really quickly. You know, the reality is when you chunk self-pacing in two, three-week spans of time, kids aren't actually that far apart. Like, I think people have this, like, image that, like, there's kids on, like, unit seven and kids on unit two. It's like, I've been to, like, probably at this point, 500 modern classrooms, and very rarely do you see kids more than three to five lessons apart. Like, that is a very, very wide distance. And in that case it's usually one or two kids that have are essentially in the wrong course. Like they're in a 7th grade math class but should be in an 8th grade math class so they're they're mm-hmm. flying through content. And in those rare scenarios I was actually just in Seattle watching a modern classroom. This particular teacher has a huge diversity of learning levels and there were two kids on totally different units. They had shown on pre-assessments that they had actually mastered the entire unit, so it was okay for me to, for them to be on a different unit. And that you know takes an even more rigorous level of planning. Um, that's not the norm, but that's generally how kind of progress tracking is structured, and how stu- students and teachers are kind of always aware of where they should be and where they're going.
0: And so, if you had to like answer this big lofty question of like, what vision do you have for the future of education? what would you say? Because you're obviously doing this important work and providing something that is, you know, it's got structure, but teachers and schools have a lot of ability to customize it and make it work for them. But like, what, what is your vision? What do you feel like you're working toward or what you'd like to see?
1: Yeah. You know, I think if we ask ourselves, honestly, today, if a teacher goes through a teacher prep program and walks into the classroom, are they choosing between a variety of instructional models or are they just doing the same one over and over again? I think we, you know, a lot of folks are kind of in these innovative environments. They don't realize it, but in mass teachers are traveling through a program, preparing to walk into the classroom and they're learning about one instructional delivery model, a sit and deliver model. Um, not only is that a terrible, terrible thing for students, but it's also terrible for teachers. It's likely going to ensure that a huge percentage of them will burn out. Um, and I want to imagine a world where educators walk into the profession and have a menu of instructional delivery models that they choose from, and that they pick the one that kind of merges their own personal self and style with the student communities that they're working in to be able to implement a model that actually maximizes teacher time, maximizes student learning, and maximizes the capacity to support the whole child. So I want to be one part of that solution. The Modern Classroom Project to me is one part of that solution. It's also why I'm pretty big on the opt-in approach. Like we've been asked to switch that. Like I, I can tell you there have been some principals and district leaders that go, no, I want every teacher to do this. And I say, well, well, they have to opt in if you want every teacher to do that. And every teacher has to say they want to do it. And part of the reason why is I'm not necessarily 100% sure that every teacher should be doing the modern classrooms model. I'm 100% sure they shouldn't be doing stand and deliver a one-size-fits-all, right? <laughs> but like there's other ways to do it. And I will never forget. Um Miss Milner, she was one floor above me when I had built this model with my co-founder. And you would walk into her classroom every day. And I don't know what instructional model she was using. It wasn't traditional one-size-fits-all, and it was fabulous. And I think it would be silly to force that teacher to have created her mo- her classroom around our model, right? But, you know, so I think that providing a menu of new approaches to teaching and learning needs needs to be what we provide any educator so that the default isn't a model that's convenient and effective for students.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and And still being used because it's all teachers know, which is not, yeah, they need to be walking out of credential programs, out of teacher training with like a tool belt of models to choose from. I could not agree more. All right. So I always end the show by asking my guests to share any tips they have for creating and maintaining a healthy-ish work-life balance. So is there any tips, routines, strategies you found particularly helpful that you can share with the folks listening?
1: Oof, I'm like a bad person to ask this. Um, (laughs) You
0: know how many people on this podcast say that before they offer their tip?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm like about to be like, can you send me all the other tips? Um, So... (laughs) I think the most important thing, though, is what we talked about, which is that if you invest your time and energy in preparing for work effectively, then work is more joyful and it's more scalable. I always say I founded the Modern Classrooms Project nonprofit and started training teachers while I was a teacher, not because... I was some sort of like magical person that had an extra set of hours in a day, but it's because I had done the modern classrooms model in the content areas I was teaching for multiple years. So that was streamlined. It was effective. Every class period was fun. It was exciting. The content was created. It was all well-planned. So I had that extra time. I had good work-life balance. And at that point in time, I could like work on founding a 501c3. So um, sometimes it... Creating work-life balance, in my opinion, is actually not having a ton of balance early on, investing really, really aggressively in the planning process that then kind of provides the benefits you need for a really long time. So a lot of folks will say is the modern classrooms, um, you know a hard thing to plan for. I say, yes, but once you do it, your life will be radically different. So we have to take the steps sometimes to invest in things that are challenging at the onset, but then pay really big dividends. Um, And I think my biggest piece of advice is is to invest in those um, because they really have returns in the long run.
0: Oh, I love that advice. Um, I had the very same experience, like the onboard to blended learning models was, it was steep. For sure. But then once I had my videos and once I had the structures in place, it was just like, I love, I went from wanting to quit my job to like loving this work. So totally. So, how can people find out more about the work you're doing, the modern classroom project? Where should they go? Yeah. So, I mean, we're a nonprofit. The beauty of a
1: nonprofit is we have unrestricted access to information, which means if you go to our website, www.modernclassrooms.org, you can watch our utopia videos, get a feel for our work. But really, where a lot of folks start is our free course, which is learn.modernclassrooms.org. Free experience, full set of kind of self-guided, self-paced experience to learn our model from start to finish. Um, so those are the two places I most commonly direct folks. Now, if you're a school or district leader who's like interested in bringing this to your community, there's a Partner With Us button on our website. It's, you know basically gives you kind of a nice walkthrough for how you can schedule a call with us. But I always tell folks the number one way to do this is to go to our website or go to learn.modernclassrooms.org to access our free course. You can also obviously follow our social media channels at Modern Class Raj, um, to follow kind of big updates there. But those are the two spots.
0: Awesome. And I'll make sure that those are included in the show notes. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. there are a lot of takeaways for me from this conversation, because I think there's a lot of synergy between the work Kareem does with the Modern Classroom Project and the work I do um, facilitating training with teachers around blended learning. But I think the comment that he made that really resonates that I want to echo because it's something that I say a lot is... One model isn't going to work for everybody. And too often, teachers enter this profession with just that kind of single approach of whole group, teacher-led learning. And the modern classroom is another approach. It's another model. And I think what I would love for teachers to have is exposure to a lot of different ways to do this work, a lot of different models, so that they can decide what is going to work best for them and their students. Another real point of emphasis, obviously, for the Modern Classroom Project is that self-pacing. And that is something that I think we don't talk about enough in education, which is that different learners need to spend different amounts of time on different tasks. So whether they are reading something or watching a video and trying to process what they've read or what they've seen, whether they need to kind of follow their own path, through a project or assignment. And so they're going to need more or less time on that task. The more we can start to turn that pacing over to students, the more likely they are to feel confident in their ability to do the work and engaged in the process. It's hard to fully and deeply engage when the learner isn't in control over that pacing. So I really see the modern classroom as being this opportunity to reimagine the way that we design learning experiences, weaving the best of online and offline learning together to position the learner at the center of the experience, allowing them to dictate the pace, and also freeing the teacher to spend their time and energy supporting learners, engaging with individuals in small groups, figuring out what scaffolds and supports or models might individually learners need to continue making progress. So all of that is very, very exciting. And I see an opportunity for teachers in the Modern Classroom Project to weave in a variety of different blended learning models, which I think is also really exciting. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. Studysync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include engaging, supplemental, digital inquiry solutions for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or follow the link in the show notes.